MotoGP 2022 has started already with a test in Jerez last week after the final race of 2021 that was a little bit further north in Valencia. New bikes, new teams, new colours. Simon Patterson, he was there and he's here to talk to us here at the Race MotoGP podcast with Valentin Harunshi and myself, Toby Moody. Hello to you both. I hope you're all well and good. First off, top rack, Razgatlioglu. Did I get that right? 2021 World Superbike Champion. He was crowned in Indonesia aboard his Yamaha as the champion. But let's get straight into it. There were rumours of him getting into MotoGP. What is going on? Well, the long story short, really, is that everyone wants him to come to MotoGP, apart from him and his manager, Keenan Safoglu, it seems. Um, we know that he hasn't ruled out the subject. He has said that it was something he would consider in the future. But first, he wanted to become World Superbike Champion. Well, he's now went and done that. He is absolutely staying in that paddock for 2022. That's not in doubt. But he has a two-year contract for, for 2022 and 2023 that isn't with Paul Denning's uh, Crescent Pada Yamaha team based out of Southampton. It's directly with the factory. So if they want to move him over the year afterwards, theoretically, there is, there is leeway to do it. Uh, there's space for him as well because both the With You RNF Yamaha riders, Andrea Davizioso and Darren Binder, are on one year deals. So if they wanted to make room there, there's space to make room. The biggest issue really is whether he wants to do it. Uh, there's a risk to doing it, obviously. Um, it's whether you want to take that step back and 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 you know set back your career potentially a couple of years to recoup the benefits. It's something that his manager, Safoglu, did and, and didn't do successfully in his own time as a racer whenever he went from World Supersport to Moto3, Moto2 and back again. But there's a huge desire for Yamaha to, ha Yamaha to have uh, you know, this rider. He's exciting, he's a showman, he's a Muslim rider who appeals fantastically to the... the Malaysian RNF team's home audience both in Malaysia and across the border in Indonesia it really all comes down to whether or not Yamaha can present a package that's appealing enough to him to make it work. Oh, I couldn't agree more couldn't agree more, I think it's fantastic fantastic. Val? It makes complete sense for Yamaha to want the guy but the mechanics aren't, I mean they aren't so simple to me, I like would you really dispose of both Andrea Dovizioso and Darren Binder after one season. I know Toprak only needs the one spot, but if if the Raul Fernandez chase is legit and if they're succeeding on that front, then would you potentially prioritize the Grand Prix paddock proven <laughs> Raul Fernandez over over Toprak? And I don't know, that's a difficult question. I would I would say yes-ish, probably, yes. Uh so it's you know it's not that complicated. It's not as if he's the the only card Yamaha have to play. Although obviously luring over top rack should be a bit easier than uh, luring over Raul. Well, the thing at the end of the day is they have two spaces. Uh, Andrea Davizioso is not spring chicken. Um, he's going to be thirty seven come the start of next season, which is you know not a young age. And he's there because he brought a sponsor. Let's not forget that. So. If the Darren Binder experiment on the other side of the garage doesn't work, there are theoretically two spaces for the team 
to drop in two riders and Raul Fernandez and a proven Yamaha World Superbike race winner in, in the form of Toprak would be a good combination. Mm. Mm. I couldn't agree more with you, Simon. You're, you're, you're 200% right. You know, uh, We've said it before in previous podcasts, haven't we? You have to go to Southeast Asia to see how big MotoGP is. They have their MotoGP parties there Sunday quite late nights for a two o'clock race in Europe. And there's massive, great, it's like a concert. And all it is is a big screen with stalls, food, people screaming at the television. It's another world. It's another world. It, the, just come back to what you said, Val, you know, that the point about Fernandez, of course, it's going to swing towards Fernandez coming through the Grand Prix paddock to get into the big class. And I know that we've had people win races coming from World Superbike, come into MotoGP, the, but the propensity is it's swinging towards the former. Well, yeah, I, I should, you know, correct myself by saying it. those words weren't meant as a, as a, any sort of insult to, to World Superbikes and the, the competitiveness in there. And ultimately, I think Toprak has, in winning the title, very much done enough to turn a MotoGP gig because if we look at recent World Superbike history, uh, two fairly accomplished MotoGP riders came over in Alara Bautista and uh, Scott Redding and neither could topple Jonathan Rea, and now, you know, Toprak has done exactly that, and has arguably looked the most convincing doing it. I mean, he, he, he clearly didn't fluke into this championship. I remember after, like, maybe 12 races into the season, looking at the standings, I was like, well, this is all well and good, but there's no way Rea is being beaten over the 7,000 race season that World Superbikes have. But it actually happened. It actually happened pretty convincingly too. Like it was not. It was not that close. It was maybe clo the point standings make it look a bit closer than it was. I think. So, yeah, he's earned it. It just it's it's no slight to Top Rack or World Superbikes. Me bringing up Fernandez. It's just that Fernandez is is a is a nightmare. <laughs> that's that's basically it. The the weird thing for me is. Um... Going the other way, it's kind of, we have this perception that MotoGP don't want anyone from World Superbikes, but it's not really the case because the the, the previous three guys before uh, before Jonathan Ray started dominating the series, who made the jump, Ben Spees, Danilo Petrucci and Cal Crutchlow, all three of them are race winners. All race winners, yeah. All three of them ended up as factory riders. And yeah. really, the the thing that, you know, the, the the reason that we've got this perception now is because Ray didn't make the move whenever he had a chance potentially to do it. Um, it's So there is, a, there is a proven success story there. It's just that we've not seen it in a few years. And maybe Toprak's the guy to change that. Maybe he's the guy to reset yeah. it. I mean, the chance Jonathan Ray did get, it was pretty good. Just wasn't wasn't very long, but yeah. So, and, and ultimately... Yeah, he had other chances. He had chances yeah. he didn't take in the end that could have told a very different story yes yeah and, and ultimately that you know that ray ray not taking the plunge has sort of made him the the end boss of anybody who has to who who wants to get to uh, to moto gp so you know there were suggestions of Vandermark at some point there were suggestions of davies at some point but neither of them could really hold a candle to jonathan ray and now we have a guy who who can and he's a no-brainer then just again Raul Fernandez. I, I'm going to keep banging that drum because I'm in love with the idea of Raul Fernandez on an M1. And I think so is Raul Fernandez. So, uh, 
yeah, we'll see. Well, why don't we talk about Ralph Fernandez now then, shall we? Ralph Fernandez, Remy Gardner, they are were on the bikes properly for the first serious test after their rollouts after Mizano won earlier this year in September. And immediately there was a bit of needle between them. It, it's kind of a shame, actually, that there was a bit of needle because it's taken away from what was uh, some really, really strong testing performances from the pair. Uh, they were both really, really rapid, even though it wasn't quite their first time in the bike because they'd had their, their half day at Mizano last month. But yeah, in a rather explosive interview out of nowhere, um, Raul Fernandez has come out and said that he believes the IO team were working for his teammate Remy Gardner and against him last this season in Moto2, that he was the moral victor of the championship and uh, kind of really, really set fire to the whole relationship with KTM out of nowhere, which um, personally I think might be a bit of a deliberate strategy. Um, we know that there's Yamaha interest, serious Yamaha interest. We know he's on a one-year deal for 2022. And part of me thinks that maybe this is an attempt to to burn the house down, really, to, to make his position so untenable that when it comes to it, KTM just don't want him to be a part of their setup in the future which is a bold strategy, especially for someone who's 20 years old to be making. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that's not the case at all. And he, he genuinely believes it. But I think he's far too intelligent to A, believe something like this and B, come out and say it publicly unless there was a motive for it. He's not a hot-headed, explosive writer. He's an intelligent guy. And I, yeah, I can't help but feel like this is all a strategy. Really, it's it's sort of unfortunate that you know, if if that's what's going on, that it's unfortunate that Remy Gardner's Moto Two title is ending up a bit of collateral in that. Do I think Raúl Fernández was more impressive than Remy Gardner in Moto Two this season? Yes, I think I think most people would generally agree with that, given their respective experience levels and given the the outright bursts of pace that we've seen from from the two sides. Remy was more more of a managed title campaign. Raúl was more of a just blow your mind's incredible speed that sometimes ends in the gravel, but very often ends at coming fast at the checkered flag. Uh, but also, you know, the fact that Raul is saying that is whatever the intention, and I, I think he tried to walk it back a little bit in his English session during the during the actual test, but whatever the intention is, it's it it it's definitely it's not gonna make the KTM relationship any better, that's for sure. Because KTM will look at it like clearly the Ajo package was the IO package was the uh the best on the Moto two grid. Probably and the by, Moto three grid. Yeah. Probably by a fairly decent margin. And you're you're mad at us? Like they're gonna be they're not gonna love that. But maybe that's maybe that's the point. Maybe he's not interested in having KTM love him anymore. Maybe it's just, you know, Maybe the the bridges were burned by the the announcement of the MotoGP promotion. We'll I think we'll know a lot more as the season develops because if he really doesn't want to be there, then a rider who doesn't want to be there being there for an entire season is a recipe for ugh, it's a recipe for something else. It's a it's going to be really interesting. And if he does want to be there, then he should not have said any of those things. At the Jerez test, Mark Marquez was not riding. He had muscle damage around his eye the week before the penultimate race in Portugal. So no Portugal, no Valencia, no test. The last we heard, he's going to have a checkup 
around Christmas time. That's over a month ago, away, should I say. Is this just an ongoing one, or are we going over old ground from last week, Simon? I think there's a, a bit of um, medical diagnosis from people who aren't necessarily experts going on here. Uh, what we've heard is that uh, essentially he's not going for the surgery that he knows will repair the problem with his eye. But he knows that surgery. He's had it before. He knows how long it takes to recover from it. So that's a, a variable that the, him and his medical team believe they understand. But what they're also aware of is that this is a problem that might heal itself in due course, just, just by waiting it out, essentially. Uh, so what they're doing by waiting until after Christmas before they consider any surgical options is they're trying to give Mark's own body a chance to heal naturally. They're they're buying themselves some time, essentially, when, when they don't have a need to rush. Um, if they wait until after Christmas for the next checkup, if things aren't healing up the way they want them to, then they'll do the surgery and he'll be fit for the start of the season. Okay, good. Now, his teammate on the other side of the garage, Paulus Bargaro, he said that it was a real step forward at Hareth. He could really use the rear brake, get the thing turned into the corner as he used to do when he was on the KTM. He said every Honda rider has been having these problems entering the corners. Could have fooled me looking at the slow-mo of Mark, but never mind. Uh, he also said that his scaphoid, scaphoid, the bone in the middle of your wrist falls asleep after a few laps but hey ho he gets a hundred million points for riding around in a naked carbon fiber hrc spec bike they don't half look the business don't they <laughs> oh don't they look good just an hrc sticker orange wheels unpainted carbon brilliant or is it just me uh it's not just you toby <laughs> The, but the, the number one thing for me, though, isn't how necessarily the bike looked. It's how different the bike looked. Um, it's pretty obvious that Honda have, have brought another evolution of that radically different RC213V that we first saw at the Misano test last month. And what the initial feedback from Paul Espagaro seems to be is that Honda have actually done what they told us they were going to do a year ago, and they've built a bike that doesn't just sit Mark Marquez. But was it different? How, how do you know? <laughs> They've, they've they've uh, they've built a bike that now seems to produce a lot more rear grip than what they were previously getting. Um, that has really, really helped Espagaro in particular to address some of the issues he had. And he looked really strong in test and he was fast. He was confident. Obviously, it's tempered a little bit by the fact that it was cool at Hareth, which is conditions that he's been fast in all year. But it, it really does sound like there's been something of not just a breakthrough there at Honda, but of a, a real revolution in their mindsets, um, which is something that you know, people like Cal Crutchlow have been calling out for in the past. It's something that needed to happen there. So, yeah, here's, here's hoping for, for the sake of the Honda riders that it is actually something that we're going to see reflected whenever Marquez gets back on the bike, because if it is a step, it'll help him too. And what it'll mean all in all is that we're going to have a super, super competitive season next year if, if the Honda's fast as well as everyone else. I mean, you know, correlation causation, I might be wrong here, but, you know, Paul started with a KTM that was not so very good and helped it become quite good. And now that he's left, it's not so very good again. Well, sometimes, sometimes it's quite good, but it's, it's more erratic than it was when he left. I can't help but think that Honda signed him also partly to benefit from 
from that proven track record at KTM. Obviously, it was never old Paul. It was Mika Calio, it was Danny Pedrosa. But you, there are worse riders on the MotoGP in MotoGP history that you could listen to than, than Paul Espargaro, certainly. Now, Quattararo was the reigning world champion, didn't have so much of a good time aboard the works factory Yamaha team. He said, we didn't really progress. He seems to have given a warning shot to those back in Japan at Iwata to, to up their game a bit. Um, he's got to be strong with them as he's the man who goes quickest on the bike, full stop. There's no one else to turn to. Are they in trouble yet? Or is it just a continuation of what we heard towards the end of the season, Val? I guess, it I mean, at the end of the season, they looked in trouble. So I, I guess it depends what, what trouble exactly means. They're going to win races next season. Uh, Fabio's probably going to fight for the title. But I mean, there might be some ways in which they're in trouble because it's clear that from listening to every Fabio interview over that test and also what he was saying post uh, after the final races of the season, it's clear that he's adopted a tactic that he's not just letting things slip, that he's very deliberately putting pressure on the, the Yamaha technical team to improve the things that he wants improved, which for him, he says, is basically his top speed, which I'm I'm not sure he's getting, but he might, he might get a better package for 2022, and that might well be enough as it was this year. Uh, but the fact that he's putting pressure on already, despite winning the first title so, so recently, suggests to me maybe that Yamaha won't have as easy time renewing him long term <laughs> as it maybe would have assumed a couple of months prior, as clearly he's not 100% happy. And for, for a rider who doesn't seem to be that high maintenance, that's maybe a bit of a bit of a warning sign. I actually think that what we're seeing for the first time this season and for the first time in a while is actually, is a little bit of immaturity from Fabio Quartararo in maybe not quite understanding what he needs Yamaha to bring him. Um, sure, Yamaha could bring him an engine that's got more horsepower. Sure, they could bring him an engine that's considerably faster than the one that he has right now. But the problem with that is... It doesn't turn. Once you put a, a, a great big powerful engine into the bike, then suddenly the, the bike becomes a handling nightmare. So yeah, every part of motorcycle engineering, as we always say, is a concession. So yeah, maybe he he needs the realization that he's not going to beat the Ducatis on top speed um, without building a, a completely different motorcycle. You know, arguably Yamaha are not going to beat the Yamahas or beat the Ducatis without building a v4 um and they're not going to scrap their inline four engine to do that so it's it's something that he's going to have to work with it's something that they're going to have to find a way around rather than a a way to fix um but it sounds like they made some big steps forward in other areas there's a new chassis that they're really happy with and i i think in the long term once you know the lights go out and we go racing again he's going to realize that that's the real benefit of the bike he also needs a few months of re reflection, because I like a couple of months off, because I, I cannot imagine that this isn't at least partly motivated by seeing the fleet of the freaking Dukes, and particularly the one Duke that went so quick at the end of the season, that also went offensively quick in the test, as if it was trying to scare everyone else, as if that was deliberately an attempt to intimidate. Banyaya looks 
terrifying. If I'm if I'm Quartararo, I'm I mean I'm probably still pretty buzzed about the buzzing about the uh the title, but if Banyaya wanted to scare his rivals, I think he succeeded and I think he'll read some of the comments from Fabio and some of the other guys and he'll be like, "Good." Good. I, for the record, I think that that's absolutely what we're seeing. We are seeing Peko Bagnaia and Ducati yeah. running a mind game campaign against Fabio Quattararo and anyone else that happens to get caught up in it so that they go into winter testing, you know, mentally the victors of preseason and automatically in a stronger position. And it seems so far from Quattararo's comments like it's working. I, I just have all the Maverick Canales preseason results really printed out. There is that. There is that. Yeah. Uh, Ducati uh, played around with a new frame, some new aero. Well, that's a given. And they apparently had a faster engine. Does it really need that much tweaking? <laughs> I just, I just, I just love how how much everything aligned from Banyaya's words and the lap time. First of all, the lap time was. As if you just did a qualifying sim just to mess with everybody, which is, I think, entirely possible given looking at the lap time. Especially as he then went on to point out that those were medium tires. Especially as he called the bike a perfect bike and said it was even better now, so even better than perfect. Mathematically impossible, Peko, but I, I get your point. Especially, I just... Yeah, it's a... It does feel like an intimidation campaign, which is, which is fun. That's a fun thing to do, and I respect that a lot. But also, just just aside our skepticism, God, he's been so good this year. I'm so impressed. I, like, we're probably going to do a, a, a top 10 podcast at, at, at some point later this year, and you can already... I'm giving away a few things here, but Pecco's just... I... With, with Marquez's injury, like, I know you shouldn't judge on testing. I know you shouldn't judge on end-of-season form. But, yeah, Becco's my favorite for next year, I think. Um, it's gonna. I don't think preseason is going to change that anytime soon. Not that that's worth anything, but, yeah. Okay, we touched on Tech 3 earlier. Um, for the main factory KTM squad, an ideal chance to turn things around. But, unfortunately, it was only 11th place for Brad Binder. And as you wrote in your article on the website, Simon... They then cancelled all of their media appearances. Ouch. Yeah, that was, for me, quite a telling sign about how things went for them at the test. Um, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it's very, very unusual to have a, a factory team test for two days in a, a public open test and refuse to speak to the media afterwards. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's... It, it reflected in the results as well. They obviously didn't expect to be so far down the standings. You know, we, we had five manufacturers in the top five and then the next, the best KTM was 11th. That, that's not how the story is supposed to go for a, a team that, you know, have won two races this year. It seems like they're lost. It seems like there's no way out of this, this hole that they're in at the minute. And, it seems like the, the KTM strategy is working against them to an extent because it seems like they're they're almost trying to engineer their way out of the problem. They're trying to spend money. They're trying to bring new parts. They're trying uh, constant upgrades. You know, the riders never on the same bike twice, the factory riders. And it seems like that's just confusing the whole situation to the point where they, they can't actually find 
a solution to get the guys comfortable with a good base setting. I think there's a reason that the uh, the satellite bikes of, of Danilo Petrucci and Iker Lacona had a good run at the end of the year last year. I think it's because they were not making the radical changes week on week that the factory team are making because the engineers want them to. Uh, before people write in and have a go at you, Simon, you said they got to engineer and spend their way out of the problem. That's usually the trick. No, I think quite the opposite, Toby. I think they need to stop trying to engineer their way out of the problem and spend their way out. I think they need to concentrate on the parts that they've got right now and, and work with, you know, a bit more base setting and, and see what happens because they're just spending and it's not working. What I would say is the fact that they didn't do a written media appearance doesn't necessarily mean that KTM has had the worst test. It just means that a, a manufacturer that's more keen on controlling the narrative than most, I think that's fair to say, uh, didn't particularly want a big narrative from their test, which which is, yeah, a little bit telling. But also just listening to the to the interviews that did pop up, uh, both Miguel and Brad spoke to tomatogp.com after the after the tests and Miguel said that um, basically he indicated that the what they had in the test still has the same character to the current bike and that they need a change of character, which to me is that sounds concerning a little bit because ultimately this is a bike that has won two races this year, three races the year before. I mean, that might have been a bit different, a bit more competitive, but you know what I mean? If they have to do another big change, that's a setback. That's going to take even more time. And at, at, at some point, you're falling behind the roadmap. I don't know what the KTM roadmap is, but I I can't imagine, given how well 2020 went, that 2021 lived up to, to what they wanted it to be. And if they need to make big radical changes again, then that's a, that's a concern. I would imagine, without obviously knowing any specifics, any details, anything from inside the camp, I would imagine that uh, the KTM roadmap with Brad Bender on a contract until the end of 2024 looks something along the lines of being world champions by the time that contract runs out. Yeah, well, they came in 17, 18, 19, 20, yeah. 21. That was their fifth season just gone. And they signed up for five years initially when they made that announcement in 2016. So they've then done another five years, but only a couple of years ago. So there's still time to go. They're not going to walk away without not winning a world championship in, in MotoGP. Um, Luca Marini, he gets 200 points from me for being in an all-black carbon fibre AGV. <laughs> with a carbon black bike with just a few sponsors uh, dotted all over it. But, of course, what he's done, he's leapfrogged over the 2020 Ducati and he's gone straight from a 19 to a 21 Ducati. New team, a VR46 base chosen from everybody around the Tavulia area. People like Matteo Flamini in there, who's been Valentino Rossi's data engineer, going way, way back to when those two got together at Gullwise Yamaha 2004. Um... Another little nugget of the Marini thing was something that Michele Pirro let slip. He said, who's the test rider for Ducati? He said, I've asked Valentino to test the Ducati, and apparently he said yes. <laughs> I just think that's a great little story if it happens. Lucas seemed to contradict that a little bit. Lucas seemed to say that, as far as he's heard, that's 
I, if I understood him correctly, I think as far as he's heard, that's not the case, but he would be very happy to see Valley do it. But I, I think Luca was kind of poured a bit of cold water on that. But also, of course, he w- I think if, yeah. if there's anything that we will see, it will be Valentino Rossi doing a parade lap on the bike at Michello or Mizano, something along those lines, rather than a test, simply because when you look back at Valentino Rossi's career, the guy hated testing. His idea of hell was spending three days riding the same bike around in an empty track, uh, just burning laps for the sake of it. So I I would be, yeah, I'd be stunned if there was a world in which we saw him suddenly become the test rider. Uh, there's also a... Now, if he hates testing, you know who his favorite team, or who his ideal teammate would be. This is a Maverick Canales joke, so <laughs> edit that out if you like. <laughs> I'm sorry, Maverick. <laughs> But it's a great little story that they've got everybody in that team literally from around Tavulia. They can hang out together at home. They travel together. They're at the races together. Nobody's a stranger. Everybody's a friend. And there's another little VR46 story that's going to spin off that. And you might go quite well next season because the early signs from the test were quite good. And he was obviously on the 21 in the test, I believe. And he'll be on the 22 next year. So even another upgrade still. But basically, the impression from Luca was that it's, you know, it's a sweeter handling, nicer bike to ride. And that's more important to him than maybe to most riders, because physically, he's still, you know, the race longevity hasn't really been with him this year. And we know how much, how big a difference can be made for a rider to make the Ducati less physical. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that Luca Marini is going to turn into Jorge Lorenzo next year, but... There's precedent for big improvements on the Ducati once you make yourself more comfortable on it and able to last longer. Zarco too, so, yeah. There's got to be a certain amount of feel-good factor being Luca Marini and jumping on what is essentially the final evolution of a bike built in part for Danilo Petrucci, who was the biggest rider in the grid before Luca. Um, Luca, you know, he's the tallest rider in the grid right now. He's also the skinniest rider in the grid right now because he has to be. He can't be heavy. He can't put on the muscle that you need to physically manhandle a bike around, just like Danilo before him. So th- there's got to be, uh, yeah. there's got to be, yeah. you know, some happiness in knowing that um, from his from his point of view. Yeah. And then, obviously, the other thing is uh, about that team for next year on the other side of the garage is that they've got Marco Pazecchi joining, uh, which I think is a, a great signing for the championship because he's he's a character who maybe hasn't really been been given too much of a voice in Moto2. You know, we someone asked him after the second day of testing if after the first day he'd phoned Valentino to ask for, you know, for advice or to give him some feedback, and he said no. Valentino went on holidays after Valencia and I'm not going to break his balls by calling him. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, there's a little bit of the old Cute. VR one-liner flair. Also a good writer. Oh yeah, absolutely yeah, a good and, writer. And, Super talented guy as well who, who maybe hasn't shown his true colours in Moto2 but I think will go better in MotoGP. We should say that's also probably true for Digia who also looked quite good in the test. Yeah, so I was just, is it is it legally fair? Is it fair? <laughs> is it fair that Ducati gets to add two more rookies to its stable? There's going to be eight. I, I don't know. It's not not fair, but it's going to be... I'm more like being exasperated comically. But you see what I mean. If I'm a rival of a Ducati, I hate this. I hate yeah, all of this. Yeah, but the thing to remember is that the reason that those two extra Ducatis have been added to the grid 
at VR46 Ducati is because Suzuki turned down the chance to provide bikes there. They were offered the opportunity and they said no. So they in particular have no one to blame except themselves for, for there being eight bikes on the grid next year. Yeah, twas ever thus with Suzuki. Um, over at Aprilia, uh, a tale of two uh, two sides. Vinales, wonderful, happy, great. I'm going back to Nawali. I'm working with the engineers. As if a PR person wrote his lines. Whereas Alicia Spargaro was not happy saying that the bike was 99% the same as Valencia. So, what's really going on? Uh, Toby, what is Maverick's one true love? <laughs> you know, just give, him, just give him a day and 90 laps. Just love it. As always, fastest. And he was really fast, top five. So, but that's just not, I mean, that's no longer surprising in any way, shape, or form. I, I wonder if he'll ever get truly to the bottom of why that's going on. But, um, you know, at the same time, all jokes aside, Maverick's still... All jokes aside, he's your true love in this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love talking about Maverick because he is one of the most interesting riders in my era of covering MotoGP. Probably the most interesting. And I should say, he's still in the honeymoon period with the RSGP. He still sort of sees that boundless, limitless potential. He still probably fancies himself to get a bit more out of it than Aleish when push comes to shove after building up enough experience. Also, he didn't get banged up like Aleish did during the test, so that also probably helps in terms of in terms of mindset. But yeah, we'll see. Let's see what Maverick's saying in in the preseason, which would in the preseason next year, I mean. I guess that'll be the that'll be telling. And as for Aleish, let's see if he resigns. I I think that maybe what we're seeing at Aprilia is a little bit of a, a change in structure for Alish. Um, kind of because of what, what you alluded to there, Val, about uh, Maverick being more capable of getting a little bit more out of the bike in the long run. Maybe, um, you know, we, we've seen Aprilia run a fairly, a fairly expected structure for the last few years, where Alish has been the obvious number one rider where he is the guy who has got the refined finished parts as soon as they're done moved over from the unfortunate number two on the other side of the garage of which there's been a revolving door who've who've always uh been tasked with with developing stuff on a a much more you know on and off the bike try this compare this back to back this way the way almost the uh suzuki far more effectively used sylvan Gantoli in their test rider role where where parts that come to the race team are already kind of the finished article or or well, and Lorenzo or close Salvador, to it. Yeah, yeah. pretty of Lorenzo Savadori, but it, it's not quite the same yeah. as, as the way that a pretty use a leash. Or use the second rider, sorry, in the race team. Um so I think maybe a leash is now realizing that he's not the clear number one anymore. He's got a bit more of the the tedious type of testing to do. The the Put in the swing arm, do 10 laps, put in the swing arm, do 10 laps and tell us which one feels marginally better type of frustrating work that uh, is, a, you know, is a part of developing a bike, but which he is in a way being avoided, being spared. Down at Grassini, Nadia Grassini, the wife of poor Fausto, is now there as team principal. Uh, sons Luca and Lorenzo are also involved for the team that's got Bastianini and Di Giantonio riding. Uh, they're still looking for sponsors, but it's a great little family story for a very, very close team after a terrible start to the year. Um, how did they get on? What's the, what's the vibe out of that all-black garage at the moment? 
that seems like a really nice, happy family team at the minute, which is uh, is good. It's nice to have that vibe back in the paddock again. Um, I think it's probably the first time we've had a MotoGP team with that that sort of feeling since maybe since Aspar left and went back down to Moto2. Um, Enia Bastianini had a really strong test. He was really fast. He was right at the sharp end. The only thing to note about it is that uh, obviously he, he wasn't making the radical bike change that some people were doing. Um, obviously he moved from a, a 19 bike to a 2021 bike, but he got given a 2021 bike and was told, right, here's your new mount for the season. You don't have to develop it. It's already developed into this amazing race winning machine that dominated the latter stages of the season. So just go ride it. So so all he had to do for the majority of the test was just spin laps, was just ride around on that bike, um, which does make life easier. But it's not taking anything away from the fact that he actually did have the speed to go and do what he did. Uh, then further down the grid, Fabio Di Gentonio had also a really good test. He was he was at the sharp end of the rookies. Um, he was looking good. Yeah, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't even expect it to be odd, really. I mean, given what Bestia has been able to show on the on the nineteen this year towards the end of the season, I think you upgrade him to a twenty one. He's gonna he's gonna do at least that again, probably even better. I mean, you never know in MotoGP, but that's that's sort of my prior coming into it. And also with with Digi, it's not a huge surprise. Never really fully came together for him in Moto Two, but he was he was a really good rider in Moto Three. So not it's not this is. Honestly, as good a lineup as a Ducati, not the the top satellite team, but the second tier satellite team. This is as good as you could hope for. This is excellent, and again, it's just Ducati deserves a ton of credit for how it's it's managed to set up its whole structure currently in terms of the in terms of the roster because it's a it's a hell of a roster, and you you just have to stand and applaud basically. It's not the Ducati team, third tier Ducati team of the Aventia days of Carl Abraham and. Uh... Uh, and Xavier <laughs> Simeon, is it? It's a wholly different approach towards developing a, a writer talent pipeline to the factory. And yeah, like you say, applaud them for it because they deserve it. They've put a lot of work and effort into it. Okay, so as we come to a close, let me just remind you, do go to the website, if only to see a picture of the latest prototype Honda Motor GP bike in carbon, fibre, black, unpainted. Go to the website, see the pictures of it. It's utterly filthy. Keep in touch with the-race.com. News and other podcasts online throughout our website. Uh, Formula One, just got two more races to go. It's getting close between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton with those 50 points still on the table. Just dead Jeddah and Abu Dhabi. 52 points. 52 points. Thank you, Val. Oh, he's sharp. You get an extra point for fastest lap in the race. Just Jeddah and Abu Dhabi still to go. Thank you, Val. Thank you, Simon. Enjoy the rest of the Hareth test and have a safe trip home. In the meantime, from myself, Toby Moody, speak to you all soon. <laughs>